1: It's really important. The Cherokee's role uh, in, in the Revolution and the role of the Native Americans as a whole uh, and the conflict that goes back before the Revolution is really important for helping us understand people were being used militarily. A large force was sent out west to fight the Cherokee. And the Cherokee play an important role in helping win
0: dependence. That's Journal of the American Revolution contributor Travis Copeland. Discussing the role of Colonel Joseph Williams in the Cherokee Campaign of 1776, and he's our guest today. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Dispatches. This episode of Dispatches is sponsored by Simon & Schuster, publisher of Liberty is Sweet, The Hidden History of the American Revolution, by Woody Holton. Available now wherever books are sold. Hello ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of Dispatches. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. Today our guest is journal of the American Revolution contributor Travis Copeland and he'll be discussing the role of Joseph Williams a colonel who participated in the Cherokee campaign of 1776 For those of you that have been listening to show to the show for a long, uh, long time uh, Travis Copeland is sort of our North Carolina go-to expert in all things revolution and he's written a really great article on a campaign that doesn't get a lot of attention uh, because it didn't deliver the uh, amazing sort of drastic battles and consequences that a lot of people anticipated. Needless to say, it's an essential piece of scholarship for getting a fuller and more complete understanding of the American Revolution in the South. The Cherokee were that important. So, sit back, relax, and enjoy our interview with Travis Copeland. Travis Copeland. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Tell us about your background. So I'm a teacher.
1: I'm a North Carolina native. I teach American history, uh, fittingly. Uh, I've lived in North Carolina my whole life. Grew up in North Carolina with revolutionary and colonial history around me. So I, early on, began to love history uh, and, and really got into reading and exploring sites and visiting locations that had a lot of history. I love to read. I also uh, just teaching in general, I love education, uh, even as difficult as it can be in this Maybe a moment of time in the pandemic, but I love uh, I love teaching too, so I'm a teacher. O- outside of that, I love nature, gardening, hiking, camping, anything that I can do that puts me outside. I enjoy being outside more than inside, uh, but that pretty much takes up all my time these days, especially teaching teachings a lot, uh, but also researching and writing is something that I love to do. I love doing that for the journal and occasionally being on the podcast.
0: What first drew your interest into this topic?
1: So... Williams, Joseph Williams, uh, resident of the Yadkin, and we'll talk about him a bit more. He interests me from the beginning because I grew up on that side of North Carolina, and the local history has always intrigued me. You pick up a a really well-written but maybe common book that surveys the American Revolution or the late colonial period, as you're getting into the war war period, and you find a lot of those prominent people, Washington, uh, Charles Lee, Jefferson. What you don't see as much is emphasis on the southern colonies and emphasis on the more local people that played really significant roles. Washington, Jefferson, and the major figures are really important. But I've always had and been hunting for untold stories of local significance or commanders that maybe played roles underneath more prominent or well-known figures. And so Joseph Williams is one of those people who really there's not a huge historic trail. He left behind a lot of stuff later on in his life and wrote few letters while he was living. It wasn't until the last year of his life that he started recounting many things. But someone like Williams, I just am always hunting for information and looking up. And sometimes things run into dead ends, but there's, Williams has produced some narratives and things that need to be retold. And so with a combination of just looking and hunting and finding and doing all that reading and digging, following paper trails, as well as the local history. Growing up on in Western North Carolina, Williams uh, is from Western North Carolina on the Yadkin in the Yadkin River Valley. And so that's a natural fit. I want to tell that story since I am familiar with that area and geography and walk the land he walked over there. So I began writing. And the first foray I had with him was the article I wrote for the journal on the Battle of Ford. He was maybe present, maybe showed up late, uh, but he lived close by when that happened in October 1780. It was a Tory and Whig skirmish that occurred. And so I just kept digging into stories that need to be told about him and uh, came to this one about the Cherokee campaign.
0: How did the Cherokee campaign first develop?
1: There are long roots with the Cherokee and Native relations, as we all know, in the colonial period as settlers move into the Carolinas. You can go back early into the 1700s and see conflicts that occurred. But those conflicts are all present, at least in the backdrop, the fight over land predominantly. As the colonist population grows, as the strength of their military grows, as they're moving west, they began to just squat on land or purchase land and conflict grows between natives and colonists moving in the Cherokee in this situation, the, the one specifically we're talking about because there are many are Western North Carolina, South of Asheville in the mountains. And so the frontier really is not, so we would think maybe the frontier is even on the other side of the Appalachian mountains, but the frontier really is most of Western North Carolina, including even some of the Piedmont. And the Cherokee and the colonists are contending for that land. Williams lives in that area. And so that's one of the reasons he's going to kind of be pulled into this conflict. One of the initial things is is the higher up. Charles Lee, who was overseeing some of the responsibilities of Monmouth fame, was overseeing some of the southern colonies. He saw that the Cherokee were instigating conflict and he wanted the southern colonies to take war to the Cherokee uh, there was also John Stewart, who was a loyalist, who worked as a British commissioner to the Indians, who was seeking to coordinate attacks both on the East Coast by the British and on the Western frontier by the Native Americans, by the Cherokee specifically. So as Stewart is meeting with these Cherokee, there is conflict throughout the spring. There are skirmishes and, and fights that break out that raise tensions and the colonists get wind of this. They know that Stewart is working with the Cher- Cherokee trying to coordinate conflict. And so they decide, and Charles Lee is one of the more vocal uh, commanders that we're familiar with, that initiates, you guys need to send a body of militia into that country and subdue the Cherokee, or at least put them down for a time so that we can focus on the British on the East Coast. So, this has kind of been going on throughout this year, and both sides diplomatically are contending for the Cherokee to join their side as the war is coming. This is 1776, so obviously independence is declared already. And so, both sides are contending for the Cherokee to join with them, uh, hunt with them, fight with them, uh, allow them to use their land or supplies or support anything that might be beneficial to conflicts between Great Britain and, and the colonies.
0: Talk if you could about Joseph Williams. How did he become part of this campaign? So Williams moves
1: to the Yadkin Valley area, which is western North Carolina, just before you're getting into the mountains. It becomes hilly, but it's not. It's uh, it's kind of Piedmont area foothills. He moves there in the 1750s and uh, settles in. Marries. He maybe works at a trading store. Uh, He gets militia experience. He develops uh, militia in and around that area, he gathers uh, just Minutemen, I suppose, who need to ward off an immediate attack. But as this conflict grows with the Cherokee, there become more raids and more conflicts lower into the valley. Uh, Nothing that I'm aware of that Williams interacts with immediately. Uh, He's obviously drilling. He's uh, a colonel, so he's, he's working to ready men for any kind of attack. But because this threat comes close to home, He's married, probably has children um, at this point. He feels the need to participate in this campaign. And as uh, someone he's in contact with, he writes some letters to Richard Caswell, who will be the first governor of Ghana. He's got political connections. He was part of some of the provincial congresses between 1774 and 1776. And so because of those connections, he certainly feels some sense of pride, responsibility, He's got some position. He's got some connection. He feels the need to step in and maybe make a name for himself more than what he has. Or maybe there's a sense of duty and responsibility that's never explicitly stated by Williams. But in both cases, he feels the need to bring himself and and men with him to protect his family and, and advocate for the colony on a whole.
0: How did Williams' upbringing in the Yadkin River Valley prepare him for this campaign? Of course, maybe the most famous inhabitant of the Yadkin was Daniel Boone, and that played a large role in his upbringing. Uh, How did it affect Williams?
1: Certainly, I think some of it comes from perspective. I think I want to reiterate what I mentioned earlier, that the Yadkin Valley is the frontier, deep frontier, because North Carolina at this time, without any deep water ports like Charleston or some ports in Virginia, the ability to get supplies and people inland is much more difficult. So the town of Salem, which is modern day Winston-Salem, it, there's a, a roads or roads are built through Salem, which makes it a little more manageable. But for a long time, getting those supplies to the colonies or trading happened through water. It was much harder to take it over land. So but North Carolina, without those deep water ports, if you go inland, it quickly becomes frontier because the ability to get supplies and people. So less people live farther west. And so William lives on the real far interior, especially compared to what would be the prominent politicians. The capital is not in Raleigh at the time. The capital is in New Bern. And so Williams lives far away, and so what becomes of that is a sense of self, uh, sense of responsibility. You have to take care of yourself. You have to take care of your family. your community has to band together. So that includes everything from uh, maybe a threat from natives or, or other locals, loyalists, or it could just be the unruly neighbor, and wild animals, just everything that requires that resilience from those leading men in the community. And alongside that, Williams is part of provincial congresses and he's playing political roles. And so he's getting leadership opportunities, both where he's kind of thrust into leadership as someone who lives on the frontier and someone who's choosing to participate in formalized, informal politics organized under North Carolina's flag. And so both of those things prepare Williams really well. He's going to take command. He's going to take some command under Colonel Christian, and because he takes command, he's both ready politically to interact and, and write letters some, um, but also on the fly to step into a situation that is dangerous or requires thinking on your feet. He's going to be well-prepared in both ways, and the Yadkin Valley is uh, is a great place for him to learn that. And he spent, by this time, he spent about 20 years there. So kind of like Daniel Boone, he's being trained by the Western frontier to be prepared for a campaign
0: like this Cherokee campaign of 76. What was Williams' plan for this campaign? What did he hope to achieve?
1: So Williams' plan is a little bit part of Rutherford and Christian's campaign. Originally, Brigadier General Rutherford was going to be sent by the southern colonies, primarily South Carolina, Virginia, and North Carolina, and head this entire expedition. But communication breaks down. And so Williams ends up, originally he was going to let Rutherford move through North Carolina and travel to the Asheville area, south of Asheville, and join him. He raises a battalion. He's from Surrey County at the time. It's now Yadkin County, Forsyth County area, but he's from Surrey County, which was rather large. He's going to raise a battalion and then take them with him to Rutherford, but because of the division and the communication that breaks up, Rutherford's campaign and Colonel William Christian's campaign, uh, separate entirely. So what he does instead, uh, and he's hoping to play a part of, you know, subduing the natives, he joins Christian in White County, Virginia. So he, uh, travels North actually just over the border. Surrey County would have connected kind of up to, uh, Virginia and he would have crossed the border, joined Christian there, and then they together will march down to Asheville. So he does a little bit of a backtrack and the plan is, to play the role along with the commanders, but as Rutherford leaves them and they are more responsible, Williams develops a desire to subdue the Indians, basically halt their ability to attack the Western frontier or the play any part that prevents the Patriots from focusing on the British at this point.
0: Talk about the importance of diplomacy in this campaign, uh, as important as any uh, musket or cannon in a campaign against Native peoples.
1: So I think... What's most important above all is the understanding that the colonists thought of treaty and diplomacy through the governor or the general or president type position where the natives felt free to make decisions as tribes. So as this diplomacy, and that gives John Stewart the British commissioner to the Indians, to the Cherokee, a lot of trouble because he's able to bring some tribes in and not others. And they're allowed to kind of make their own decision. And so this diplomacy, it's it's going to look really straightforward for the colonists, for Williams and Christian. They're going to feel this is very straightforward. We go in and we make a treaty with the natives and agree to hold them off while we can focus on the British. But what ends up happening is that some of the natives will make it a treaty because there's very little bloodletting. uh, Unexpectedly, there's very little bloodletting within this specific campaign. And uh, what they'll end up doing is making a treaty with some of the native chiefs and some will not. And so it kind of muddies that uh, agreement. There's a little bit of a tentativeness to it. Yes, we've made peace in a sense, but some of those natives that haven't made peace are free to join the British or free to make war on their own. And so there's a little miscommunication in that sense, which continues to happen throughout the revolutionary period as the colonists think one way about diplomacy and the native tribes, the Cherokee, or could be Seneca or anyone else, think differently. And so there's a little bit of conflict that occurs as a result of this campaign.
0: How did the campaign play out?
1: Yeah, I can, I can keep it short. I mean, there's no real fighting, surprisingly. I was, uh, as I was doing this research and reading, just exploring the topic, even initially, I was very surprised by uh, the lack of bloodshed. Um, as they travel west and move south, um, this is west of Asheville that you cross the French Broad River that, that goes through Asheville and go down into it's kind of Tennessee, Georgia, North Carolina meet there in the corner. This is that area of of the colonies as they're marching they really encounter no resistance. There's a few natives they can see in the woods from William's account, and they have no conflict. And as they continue to march, one colonist, because there are a few colonial settlements there, one colonist does arrive and and suggest these are, you need to make peace, these natives mean no harm. But Colonel Christian, the commander, uh, William's commander, Brushes them aside, and, and Williams is a, maybe a bit disappointed by this. He kind of suggests that it would have been good to make peace, but they do uh, end up making peace after they, they drop some militia off at Patrick Henry Fort, or they called it the Great Island, was another nickname for it. They drop some militia off there because they realize they aren't necessarily going to need all of their men. So they station them at a fort to help protect some of these other little settlements, and they keep traveling. They do burn a lot of crops and houses, uh, which leaves a scar on that peace treaty. And its kind of intent uh, was to subdue the natives' ability to make any war because this is in winter. We're going into winter, so it's going to be hard for them uh, just to sustain themselves. But as they arrive, eventually they make peace with most, but not all, of the Cherokee tribes that are present in that region. And that allows... Uh, them to call it a success. They burned crops, which prevents the natives from making war easily or in large numbers, because originally it was said that they were boiling flour and preparing for war, and now they, they don't have the food or supplies to do so. And in that, they're able to kind of hold up a peace, even though some of the tribes join the British or make war independently, they're able to hold up this peace. and And the lack of bloodshed and say that this was a a a positive thing from their
0: perspective. And
1: Williams mentions that uh, at least uh, in his 1827 account.
0: What did Williams say about this campaign in the aftermath? You mentioned his memoirs. What did he remember about it?
1: So Williams wrote a couple letters on the campaign. Uh, He wrote to Governor Caswell asking for a meeting because he was concerned that there needed to be stationed militia out in those settlements around the Holstein River, south of the French Broad River in that part of North Carolina. But in his 1827 account, he felt that they did everything uh, right, that it was that they made peace. Um, so there's a little bit of a conflict there. He dies in 1827, and so this is his last year of life. So it, it, certainly maybe the way he saw things had changed or progressed or developed in some sense, but it's not quite as coherent uh, as it may appear at first. In his letters, he's suggesting this is still dangerous. I need, we need Governor Caswell to step in and exert further force, or at least presence of North Carolina's military abilities. And at the same time, in 1827, you know, some four years later or so, he is saying we need to um see this as a good thing it was peaceful we resolved the conflict there so there is a little bit of contradiction in williams and that certainly that happens at times when you're remembering military conflict it seems that the that his 1827 re- recollection was actually more truthful that there was a good deal of peace the natives come back in the cherokee come back in 1777 and are playing a role in the revolution but they do, that burning of their fields and crops and making peace does at least put them down for the winter and prevent them from from playing any violent role uh, that they might have wanted to play. So Williams offers these two different accounts through these different periods, but it's not entirely uncommon in military recollection.
0: How does this article help us to understand the revolutionary era better?
1: It offers a couple things really helpfully. One is that the natives... Aspect of the Revolution, except for little glimpses into maybe what's considered the more prominent events, it's really important the Cherokees' role uh, in, in the revolution and the role of the Native Americans as a whole uh, and the conflict that goes back before the revolution is really important for helping us understand uh, where people were being used militarily. A large force was sent out west to fight the Cherokee. And the Cherokee play an important role in helping win independence. It's not just that the colonists are always fighting them. In a situation, there was conflict, but the Cherokee also play an important role in helping advocate for independence. Uh, so it depends upon the tribe or the area in which we're talking about. But I do think that it, it helps us understand their importance and their role. Uh, and it should they should be given more notes, certainly, for their for their role. And the second thing is the importance of local history. Uh, we would see the colonies in the South. Um, most of the time, they're not looked at until later on in the 1770s, later 1770s, 1780, 81, most importantly. But these 1775, 76, 77 years, local history and the local people that maybe are easily forgotten play extremely important roles in helping the revolution and develop and independence come about. And so people like Joseph Williams need to be remembered and be counted and help us to remember that the revolution was as much won and fought on the, uh, the high level with the high commanders like Washington or Jefferson or John Adams as it was with people like Joseph Williams and Rutherford and Christian and those minor and lesser figures that they're extremely important. And that revolutionary North Carolina was as revolutionary as any colony in the, in the 13 colonies at the time.
0: Travis Copeland, thanks again. Thank you for having me. The music played in this episode included works by Kevin McLeod and the Sturbridge Colonial Militia. Any unauthorized reproduction or use of this podcast, without the express written permission of the Journal of the American Revolution, is strictly prohibited. For everyone here at Dispatches, I'm Brady Kreitzer saying so long.